Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Helaman, chapter 7. As this chapter opens, we find the prophet Nephi leaving his field of labor in the land northward and returning to the land of his nativity, as verse 3 will tell us. This seems to be the city of Zarahemla, as we will learn that Nephi's home is there when we move farther into this chapter. This might suggest to us, in fact, that the city of Zarahemla, and maybe even this same property with its garden and its tower, was the unnamed place that was referenced in Alma chapter 62, verse 42, when Nephi's grandfather Helaman returned to the place of his inheritance at the end of the Lamanite-Nephite war that came to a close in that chapter. In any event, Nephi returns to his home from an unsuccessful mission to the land in the north at the beginning of this chapter, Helaman chapter 7. This must be a later mission than the very successful mission recorded in chapter 6 when Nephi, Lehi, and many of the newly converted Lamanites went to this same northward land in the 63rd year of the reign of the judges. And the timeline suggests this as well, since the opening of Helaman chapter 7 takes place some six years later, in the 69th year of the reign of the judges. Or, of course, another way of interpreting that is that this was a six-year mission that did begin successfully in the 63rd year, but finally ended with Nephi's complete rejection at the opening of this chapter. Well, that is the context for this chapter, Helaman chapter 7, and for the next two chapters to follow. We will learn then that Nephi does return from the land northward in this instance, and he does so in great frustration. He is no longer able to stay among the people in that land, as verse 3 tells us, because, quote, they did reject all his words. Although it is not stated explicitly here, an educated guess would suggest that Nephi could not stay among these people because his life was in danger. It is at this point that Nephi does something very unique. He laments aloud, Oh, that I could have had my days in the days when my father Nephi first came out of the land Jerusalem, he will say in verses 7-9 through of this chapter, that I could have joyed with him in the promised land. Then were his people easy to be entreated, firm to keep the commandments of God, and slow to be led to do iniquity, and they were quick to hearken unto the words of the Lord. Yea, if my days could have been in those days, then would my soul have had joy in the righteousness of my brethren. But, behold, I am consigned that these are my days, and that my soul shall be filled with sorrow because of this the wickedness of my brethren. Whether this lament was meant to be private, we are not sure as readers. But this much we do know. Certain passers-by did hear Nephi's lament, 
because it took place on Nephi's tower, which, quote, was in the garden of Nephi, which was by the highway which led to the chief market, which was in the city of Zarahemla. And this tower was also near unto the garden gate by which led the highway. So that's in verse 10. And these passers-by, these certain men, as it says in verse 11, began to gather, and they gathered others. This lament seems to have been in the form of a prayer, because as verse 12 will tell us, it was necessary for Nephi to arise, presumably because he was kneeling before God. When he did so, he beheld the multitudes of people who had gathered together. And that expression is also from verse 12. What follows is something truly unique in the Book of Mormon. It is a spontaneous sermon to a spontaneously assembled crowd. It is often referred to as a two-part tower sermon. The first part will be presented in verses 13 through 29 of this chapter, and the second part will be presented in verses 10 through 28 in chapter 8 of Helaman. This sermon is unique for several reasons, and these reasons will be discussed in our reading of the text. Among them, we will find John Welch's suggestion that this tower sermon is actually an allegorical funeral sermon that predicts the death not only of the chief judge, but of the entire Nephite nation. In addition to these things that make Nephi's tower sermon unique, it is special to us as readers because this is the first time we have heard directly from a prophet since Alma chapter 45, and that is when Alma prophesied to Helaman concerning the downfall of Nephite civilization in 400 years from the time that Jesus Christ shall manifest himself unto them. And actually, that was not a public sermon. The last time we read the actual words from a public sermon by a prophet was in Alma chapters 32 through 34, when Alma and Amulek, we can include him, spoke in the hill Oneida in the Zoramite land of Antionum. So these tower sermon chapters are special in that regard, and also because they are coming from this Nephi, son of Helaman, this new prophet in the narrative who is already legendary to us because of the things we have read about him and, of course, his brother Lehi in Helaman chapter 5. In reading these sermons, we will gain a great deal more insight into Nephi's character. In addition to the ostensible message of his sermon, we will find that he has a great love and concern for the people. He has a definite and a foreboding sense for their future, just as Alma did in Alma chapter 45. He most certainly has the spirit of prophecy, which will be demonstrated in a very dramatic way in Helaman chapter 9, and his will is in such remarkable alignment with the Lord that we will learn in Helaman chapter 10 that, quote, even that all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word, and as verse 5 will tell us, for thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. With all of this as context, then, Let's focus back on this chapter for just a moment, and the first part of Nephi's Tower Sermon, where we might discover that a distilled version of Nephi's message is found in verses 22 and 28. Verse 22 will say, For if you will not repent, behold, this great city, and also all those great cities which are round about, which are in the land of our possession, shall be taken away that ye shall have no place in them. For behold, the Lord will not grant unto you strength, as he has hitherto done, to withstand against your enemies. And now in verse 28, he'll say, And except ye repent, ye shall perish. 
Yea, even your lands shall be taken from you, and ye shall be destroyed from off the face of the earth. In other words, as Nephi is telling the people to quote the oft-repeated Book of Mormon phrase in the negative, inasmuch as you have not kept the commandments, you will not prosper in the land. This is showing us as readers that that particular promise will be fulfilled and that the same promised land conditions are in effect for us today, just as they were for the Jaredites. Moroni will say it well, in fact, in Ether chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And now we can behold the decrees of God concerning this land, that it is a land of promise, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. And the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. For behold, this is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore he that doth possess it shall serve God, or shall be swept off. For it is the everlasting decree of God. And it is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. And this cometh unto you, O ye Gentiles, that ye may know the decrees of God, that ye may repent, and not continue in your iniquities until the fullness come, that ye may not bring down the fullness of the wrath of God upon you as the inhabitants of the land have hitherto done. Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity, and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ, who hath been manifested by the things which we have written. Well, as we look at the layout of Helaman chapter 7, we can see, first of all, that it has a superscript, so we'll come back to that. In the first section of this chapter, in verses 1 through 3, uh, we find Nephi returning from preaching in the land northward, having been rejected there. Now, again, this might have been a different trip or a different mission than the one that was uh, recorded in the 63rd year of the reign of the judges in the previous chapter, or it may be the six-year end of the same mission. Hard to say for sure. I kind of uh, favor the former interpretation. But In verses 4 through 6, we'll, we'll then wonder exactly why he came back. It says they rejected his words, but then he will expand upon that in these verses. And here Nephi will observe the signs of abject wickedness that are prevalent in Nephite society. Let's talk about the way that the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money, and that these same wicked people are held in office at the head of government to rule and do according to their wills. And then he'll observe in verse 6 that all of this uh, has come about in just uh, not many years, as he says in verse 6. So now that these are the conditions, then this very interesting thing occurs in verses 7 through 9, where Nephi utters a lament doesn't say that he kneels down, but it later does say that he gets back up. So it's clear that he has done that and and that he does this on his tower. So this is a tower that's in his garden, and this will say that he cries out in the agony of his soul. And that lament is what we've uh, already read in the introduction to this chapter, and of course we'll read it again in a reading of the text. It's a really evocative and unique lament, the way in which he is, is thinking about the way things were for his namesake, Nephi. Well, then in verses 10 through 11, which we also discussed in the introduction, a spontaneous assembly gathers around Nephi's tower, and this is uh, because of certain men 
that were passing by and saw Nephi as he was pouring out his soul unto God. And that's uh, what we'll read in verse 11. At this point, Nephi notices those who have assembled, as we see in verse 12, and that's after he arose from this lament. And he then delivers the first part of this tower sermon, as it is often called. And in this, the, the very center of his message, or the essence of his message, seems to have to do with the loss of the land, with the breaking of that great promised land covenant. Now talk about how these lands shall be taken from you, uh, warning first of the downfall of Zarahemla, and then of the Nephite lands generally. So a great deal more is said, and his tower sermon begins with a kind of a rebuke to those who have gathered. But the uh, operative or actionable part of it seems to be that, uh, this, this statement that you are now going to lose your claim to this land because of your wickedness. And maybe he even used the same language that uh, Moroni read, or excuse me, that Ramon, Moroni wrote in that passage in Ether, that you have now ripened in iniquity. So it's in verse 28 that he says it most directly when he says that your lands shall be taken from you and ye shall be destroyed from off the face of the earth. Well, let's return now to the beginning of the chapter for a reading and begin first with the superscript, which says, The prophecy of Nephi, the son of Helaman. God threatens the people of Nephi that he will visit them in his anger to their utter destruction, except they repent of their wickedness. God smiteth the people of Nephi with pestilence. They repent and turn unto him. Samuel, a Lamanite, prophesies unto the Nephites. Uh, And so we can see here that Mormon is really uh, referencing the remainder of the book of Helaman because of the way that he talks about Samuel. So this kind of indicates a division between what we're about to to read now and what we've just finished that has taken us through the end of Helaman chapter 6. Regarding this superscription, John Tavetnus has said, uh, The superscription before chapter 7 tells us that Nephi wrote the chapters of the book of Helaman after that point. Or I should emphasize the word Nephi there. It tells us that Nephi wrote the chapters of the book of Helaman after that point. This material was an extract from a separate record in Mormon's possession. Clearly, a number of men had a significant hand in producing the book of Helaman. We can remember, of course, that Helaman, and we can call him Helaman the Younger, began as the prophet and record keeper of this book, but he died at the end of Helaman chapter 3. So it would stand to reason that Nephi is responsible for the remainder of the book of Helaman, and that it is taken from his own records. That would be true right up to the point that he dies, and of course he himself would not have recorded that. And in fact, to be more specific, It's not his death, really, that's recorded. It's his departure, somewhat like with Alma the Younger. And it's actually in the beginning of 3 Nephi. So that tells us, really, that the entire remainder, again, of the book of Helaman is coming out of, as um, John Tavetnus is suggesting, Nephi's records. Verse 1, Behold, now it came to pass in the sixty and ninth year of the reign of the judges over the people of the Nephites, that Nephi the son of Helaman returned to the land of Zarahemla from the land northward. So as we start this chapter, we can remember for continuity's sake that at the end of Helaman chapter 6, the chasm between the Nephites and the Lamanites seemed to be ever widening, especially because of the way in which the Lamanites dealt with the Gadianton robbers 
versus the way in which the Nephites embraced them. And so this is the thing that Nephi is trying to counteract as he is preaching among the people in the land northward with the word. Verse 2, For he had been forth among the people who were in the land northward, and did preach the word of God unto them, and did prophesy many things unto them. And they did reject all his words, insomuch that he could not stay among them, but returned again to the land of his nativity. Now it doesn't say there, of course, in verse 3, that Zarahemla and the city thereof was the land of his nativity, but we're about to learn that when he comes to his home, presumably his home, unless his tower and his garden were somewhere besides his home, uh, that this was in the city of Zarahemla. Verse 4, now Nephi will talk in verses 4 through 6 about these signs of abject wickedness in Nephite society. And seeing the people in a state of such awful wickedness, and those Gadiatan robbers filling the judgment seats, having usurped the power and authority of the land, laying aside the commandments of God and not in the least aright before him, doing no justice unto the children of men, condemning the righteous because of their righteousness, uh, letting the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money, and moreover, to be held in office at the head of the government to rule and do according to their wills that they might get gain and glory of the world, and moreover, that they might the more easily commit adultery and still and kill and do according to their own wills. So indeed, as uh, Mormon says here at the end of verse 4, that is not justice, doing no justice unto the children of men, but it's, it's quite the opposite. This also expands our understanding of secret combinations and what it is that drives them. Uh, that's something that we talked about a lot at the end of Helaman chapter 6 as we considered all that that chapter had taught us uniquely about secret combinations. There's quite a lot of commentary on these verses. I'll first read from Douglas Brinley in an article called Promised Land and Its Covenant Peoples. He wrote, Greed and lust for power lead people to tamper with the laws designed to protect and prevent exploitation of all citizens. If the majority permit changes in the laws, either by apathy or through ever-growing numbers of people who are tempted and confused about right and wrong, the stage is set for the judgments of the Almighty, for He will not allow such wickedness to continue. Gerald Hansen has written this, and this is out of a section of Nyman and Tate's Book of Mormon Commentary and the volume that is called Helaman through 3 Nephi chapter 8. Uh, this section that Hansen wrote is, is called the Terrifying Book of Helaman very appropriately named. And he says the Nephites' problem with the Gadianton robbers began with a mafia-type criminal with their secret oaths and covenants. Now we can think of, of how that did all begin in the first chapter of Helaman with Kishkumen. But it ended up with most of the society believing in false principles, which allowed the trampling and smiting and rending and turning of backs upon the poor and the meek and the humble followers of God. And that's uh, out of Helaman chapter 6, verse 39. How else could the Gadianton robbers obtain the sole management of the government and fill the judgment seats with their people if it weren't for the fact that the people at large were blind to what they themselves were doing? And how else could the people be blind to criminal and wicked activity by government leaders if it weren't for the fact that what the leaders were doing seemed normal? Few free societies knowingly elect criminals to high office and allow them to govern in wickedness. 
But the Nephites, blinded by prevalent and popular philosophies, allowed the entire government to be managed by the Gadianton robbers. I believe the greatest evidence of their ignorance and apathy is that they mourned and fasted, apparently deeply saddened at the death of their chief judge, who was, after all, a Gadianton robber. And we'll read of that sadness and of that mourning in Helaman chapter 8, and then, of course, in Helaman chapter 9, when the people discover that Nephi's prophecy is true, that he's been murdered. Now of this section Monty S. Nyman has written, any resemblance of these verses to modern-day politicians is probably not coincidental. Mormon wrote, The things which have been commanded me, as he will say in 3 Nephi chapter 26, verse 12, as a witness and a warning to this generation. Commandments of God are being laid aside today when laws are interpreted to make a display of the Ten Commandments illegal. The guilty and the wicked are set free through the work of, of high-priced lawyers. Immorality has been made common by men in the highest offices of government. We do need the message of the Book of Helaman in our day. So these, of course, are chilling statements as we consider the application of what's happening here in the Book of Helaman uh, to our modern day. From the perspective of the righteous in chapter 5, where it says that the righteous are condemned because of their righteousness, uh, President Russell M. Nelson has written this, Even in our day, the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money. Some things just don't seem fair. With strong underpinnings, however, we are better able to reach upward for help, even when faced with questions without easy answers. Though we don't know all things, we know that God lives and that He loves us. Standing on that firm foundation, we can reach up and find strength to endure the heavy burdens of life. And again, uh, the, the heavy burden that President Nelson is talking about here is how it is that the righteous don't seem to have access to justice during these types of moments. It does seem vastly unfair when the wicked go unpunished. Then this final observation in verse 6, Now this great iniquity had come upon the Nephites in the space of not many years. Robert J. Matthews has written, and this too can be found in Nyman and Tate's uh, Book of Mormon Commentary. Uh, In this section uh, that Matthews has written, it's called Patterns of Apostasy. He says, Because the people lose the spirit and fail to teach their children the doctrine of righteousness and to worship Jesus Christ, the rising generation will not know the history and the doctrine unless they are taught. And if not taught the doctrine, children are unprepared to cope with life's greatest problems. People need a reason not to commit sin. The gospel gives us that reason. So these are the things that Nephi observes for us in verses 4 through 6. And the end of verse 6 says, And when Nephi saw it, so it is these things, his heart was swollen with sorrow within his breast, and he did exclaim in the agony of his soul, So here now is his lament, which really reveals his level of frustration at this point. And I believe it's the first time, uh, starting right here, where it's not a narrator telling us about Nephi, but instead we are privileged to read Nephi's words directly. Oh, that I could have had my days in the days when my father Nephi first came out of the land of Jerusalem. And he could have said, my father and namesake Nephi first came out of the land of Jerusalem that I could have joyed with him in the promised land. Then were his people easy to be entreated, firm to keep the commandments of God, and slow to be led to do iniquity. And they were quick to hearken unto the words of the Lord. 
Now, we can notice many things from this, and of course, the most obvious thing is his connection to his namesake, Nephi, and how his lament is that um, his perception of those times is that they were more simple. But what we can also see in this is that he is already fixating upon the concept of a promised land. He's saying that back then, his people were at least easy enough to be entreated and firm to keep the commandments of God, that they had not violated the conditions of the promised land. They were not ripened in iniquity as they are during Nephi's time. And it's this promised land theme that will permeate the first part of Nephi's Tower Sermon as we progress through this chapter. Verse 8, Yea, if my days could have been in those days, then would my soul have had joy in the righteousness of my brethren. But behold, I am consigned that these are my days, and that my soul shall be filled with sorrow because of this the wickedness of my brethren. So there is Nephi's lament, and we can just feel the pathos and the tragedy of it. And now a spontaneous assembly gathers around Nephi's tower. Verse 10, And behold, now it came to pass that it was upon a tower which was in the garden of Nephi, which was by the highway which led to the chief market, which was in the city of Zarahemla. Therefore Nephi had bowed himself upon the tower which was in his garden, which tower was also near unto the garden gate by which led the highway. So this is where Nephi was. He was in Zarahemla, right by the garden gate, by the highway. Ogden and Skinner have written, The Gadianton band so thoroughly infiltrated every part of society that the government was in their control by about 23 BC. In powerful imagery, Nephi's heart was swollen with sorrow, wishing he could have lived in a different time. It is these very human kinds of expressions that make the Book of Mormon so believable and compelling. This lament was offered on Nephi's garden tower. An interesting detail for us when the place is being described that Nephi is lamenting in is that it was near the chief market, or at least that his garden was by the highway which led to the chief market. Wallace Hunt has read about this or written about this in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. He says, significantly, this is the only place in the Book of Mormon where the word market appears. Why add this description? If Joseph Smith were authoring the book, there would be no need to include such a description. We can, however, draw several conclusions from Mormon's inclusion of this phrase, chief market. First, the description was important to include since he was limited for space and therefore would have included only words, phrases, and events that he felt were significant. Also, this description signifies that cities in this time period not only had more than one market, but that one of the markets was either larger or more significant than the others. So a very interesting insight, I think, into uh, just kind of the workings of Nephite society. We might also imagine that the same kind of dynamic was alive and well in Lamanite society. For example, in Alma chapter 48, when we read about Amalekiah's propaganda campaign and how his message was broadcasted upon towers, we can imagine that that was in the Lamanite public square, so to speak, and perhaps they were at markets in the same way, and that message that was being broadcast from towers was unavoidable as they went to kind of perform their daily or weekly acts of commerce. So now returning to this account, and in verse 11, now that we are, we're getting kind of a sense of place for where Nephi was when he uttered this lament, and it came to pass that there were certain men passing by, 
and saw Nephi as he was pouring out his soul unto God upon the tower. And they ran and told the people what they had seen. And the people came together in multitudes that they might know the cause of so great mourning for the wickedness of the people. One more piece of commentary here is from John Sorensen and has to do also with this description of Nephi's tower and his garden and this market and the highway. Nephi had a garden near the highway that led to the chief market in the city of Zarahemla. Such ideas have seemed incompatible with what was known about ancient American life. Recent discoveries about Mesoamerican urban settlements, however, have now made these features seem highly reasonable. The tower might easily refer to pyramidal mounds, some built and used by families and lineage leaders for religious ceremonies, and which were referred to by the Spanish conquerors as towers. So now as we come into verse 12 and kind of finish out this chapter, moving through verse 29, we, we have Nephi addressing the people, and so his tower sermon will now begin. Verse 12, And now when Nephi arose, he beheld the multitudes of people who had gathered together. Again, as I mentioned in the introduction, perhaps this was somewhat calculated on Nephi's part, that these people would have heard him and would have assembled. I think it's more likely, personally, however, that this was an unplanned eventuality for Nephi, that he didn't expect this crowd to assemble as he lamented and prayed unto God. There could, in fact, have been another part to this where he was praying to the Lord for comfort and perhaps he received a measure of comfort. He could have even had a spiritual experience or an outpouring of love from the Holy Ghost during that episode. I say that uh, because it's so common to see this uh, pattern, uh, again, of that President Holland or Elder Holland <laughs> has referred to as post-illumination affliction, times when uh, a prophet of God or even the Savior himself is on a mountaintop having communication with God, but is then uh, after, afterward is then faced with the task of facing the masses and uh, dealing with uh, the, off, often some sort of argument or quibble So that could be what's happening here. Here now in verse 13 are Nephi's words to these people. And it came to pass that he opened his mouth and said unto them, Behold, why have ye gathered yourselves together, that I may tell you of your iniquities? That's a very interesting question. On the surface, it seems somewhat sarcastic. Um, we, We can guess as readers that these people do not want to assemble Uh, to be reminded of their iniquities. They don't seem to be interested in repenting. And of course, that's the, 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 the very heart of Nephi's problem with these people. He says in verse 14, Yea, because I have got upon my tower that I might pour out my soul unto my God because of the exceeding sorrow of my heart, which is because of your iniquities. So he will go on and talk about that. First this, though, from Ogden and Skinner who say Nephi poured out his soul in fervent prayer on his garden tower and attracted a large group of people anxious to know what could cause a man to vent such grief and personal affliction. His lamenting earned him a captive audience. Now, it, it's lamenting and, and that the text says as much. The text never says that it's a prayer, uh, but it does say that he arose in verse 12. And so it's reasonable for us as we envision Nephi doing this to assume that Nephi was pouring out his soul in prayer on this occasion. And um, 
that's what Ogden and Skinner are assuming, and that's kind of what I'm assuming as well when I talk about his post-illumination affliction, when after this experience in communicating with God, he does, then has to face this assembled crowd and uh, essentially deal with them. It's likely that he didn't feel like it. There's kind of a parallel incident that happens to this one, and it's in Mosiah chapter 26. Uh, during this period of time, Alma the elder is required to adjudicate a difficult matter in the church, and he's just kind of newly returned or has newly come to Zarahemla for the first time, depending on what your opinion is about Alma's origins. Uh, but in this case, he poured out his soul unto God. And uh, the text says that the voice of the Lord came unto him. Ogden and Skinner have written about this incident, saying the same can happen to us if we need and really want revelation. We pour out our whole souls to God, and then the voice of the Lord may come to us too. So again, that's uh, the tie-in here is kind of the assumption that Nephi was in the act of prayer and was in the act of pouring his soul unto God. But one interesting parallel component to this is that we'll read about uh, um, Nephi obtaining the sealing power. Um, In Alma's instance, when the voice of the Lord did come to him after he had poured uh, out his soul unto the Lord in prayer, Alma was given a blessing from the Lord and a covenant, actually, that he would be sealed up to eternal life. So something kind of parallel there is happening. Now, uh, coming into verse 15 now, uh, Nephi will really begin to speak to these people in earnest. That is now his task because of the way in which they have assembled. And because of my mourning and lamentation, ye have gathered yourselves together and do marvel. Yea, and ye have great need to marvel. Yea, ye ought to marvel because ye are given away that the devil has got so great hold upon your hearts. This isn't the first time that a prophet is using the word ought when speaking to an antagonistic crowd. I believe it was Amulek that did that in Alma chapter 10 when he said, Beloved brethren, at least ye ought to be beloved. So these assembled Nephites are marveling, clearly. They have stopped. They're listening to him. They've gathered others, and they've come together, and they're marveling. And uh, uh, Nephi is saying, I'm sure it's not because you want to hear of your iniquities yet you're still marveling. So, Gerald Hansen has written, The intolerant and unjust who have religion have often convinced themselves that God loves them because they do religious things. They are spiritually oblivious, or as God says to the wealthy, lukewarm members of the church in Laodicea, thou knowest that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That comes out of Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 17. The Nephites in the book of Helaman are a great example of this phenomenon. When Nephi severely chastised them, they marveled. In spite of their gross wickedness, they were shocked that he thought they were wicked. Verse 16, Yea, how could you have given way to the enticing of him who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe? The verb hurl here is quite revealing. Uh, Thomas Arvaletta has provided this, According to Noah Webster, to hurl is to throw with violence, to drive with great force. The devil rejoices when you are miserable. Once a person realizes the true nature of the devil, there is no desire to follow him or be like him. 
so that that is true. We we, we seem as a, as a consequence of our mortal probation, as I mentioned a couple of chapters back, to to kind of be insulated from the two the true consequences of our sins and insulated from an, an understanding and continual awareness of the of the abject ugliness of sin and the danger that it has on our souls and also of of just um, what Satan's tactics truly are. We need the help of Scripture to be reminded of this. Verse 17, O repent ye, repent ye. Why will ye die? Turn ye, turn ye unto the Lord your God. Why has he forsaken you? That's almost like parallelism because of the way that turn ye is such a similar expression to repent ye. It is because you have hardened your hearts, yea, you will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd, yea, you have provoked him to anger against you. And behold, instead of gathering you, except ye will repent, behold, he shall scatter you forth, that ye shall become meat for dogs and wild beasts. So that's a really graphic expression, and it's similar to things that have been said at other times in Scripture. Uh, but before that, we can see that Nephi is is contrasting gathering and scattering. McConkey and Millet have written, To illustrate the doctrines of gathering and scattering, Nephi used as a type the assembling of those who came to hear him. The faithful of all dispensations have gathered to be taught the gospel and also to facilitate the observance of their covenants. When they have rebelled against those teachings and broken their vows, their lands of promise have been taken from them and they have been driven, scattered, and often destroyed. Nephi applies that principle to his immediate audience. As they have gathered to hear him, so they must repent, and if they fail to do so, they will be scattered. Verse 20, How could you have forgotten your God in the very day that he has delivered you? But behold, it is to get gain, to be praised of men, yea, and that ye might get gold and silver. And ye have set your hearts upon the riches and the vain things of this world, for the which ye do murder and plunder and steal, and bear false witness against your neighbor and do all manner of iniquity. So really it seems that Nephi is showing us the folly of that, that a dumb, inanimate object, like a thing of the world, or praise, which is which is more abstract, but in any event, those things are the things that could be motivators for one to kill and plunder and steal and bear false witness against their neighbor. His comment in verse 20 how could you have forgotten your God in the very day that he has delivered you? I, th- I think it's a very thought-provoking verse for us. We can be guilty of the very same thing and when we think about the pattern of bondage and of deliverance that is portrayed to us throughout the Book of Mormon. reminds me of a story I heard once as a kid uh, that talks about a man who is sliding down a steep metal roof that's several stories up above the ground. And he's about to fall to his death, and he cries out to the Lord and says, Please save me. I'll give my life over to you if you'll save my life. Because again, he's about to fall over the edge. And just at that moment, his pants caught upon a nail that was protruding up uh, right on the edge of this roof, and it stopped his fall. And uh, once he was stabilized in that manner, he cried out to God saying, Oh, never mind, Lord, uh, this nail has caught my fall. We too, from time to time, I think, can be guilty of not recognizing our mode of deliverance even after having prayed for it and having received such deliverance. There does seem to be a relationship between riches and forgetting God. Uh, President M. Russell Ballard has written, 
President Heber G. Grant said that if we are faithful in keeping the commandments of God, his promises will be fulfilled to the very letter. The trouble is the adversary of men's souls blinds their minds. He throws dust, so to speak, in their eyes, and they are blinded with the things of this world. That's out of gospel standards. He tempts us with the transitory pleasures of the world so that we will not focus our minds and efforts on the things that bring eternal joy. The devil is a dirty fighter, and we must be aware of his tactics. Hugh Nibley has written this in his book Since Camorra, and he was uh, very passionate about this particular topic. The righteous can be entrusted with unlimited wealth because they do not put their hearts upon it. To his highly prosperous subjects, King Benjamin announced, I have not sought gold nor silver nor any manner of riches of you. And his even more prosperous son was never guilty of seeking for gain, yea, for that lucre which doth corrupt the soul. We read of that in Mosiah chapter 29. Riches are to be accepted gratefully as a fringe benefit in the Book of Mormon, but never to be the object of our search. Quote, but the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. That's in 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 31. The condemnation of the Nephites in the days of wickedness and vengeance is ever that they have set their hearts upon their riches. Ye are cursed because of your riches, says Samuel the Lamanite, and also are your riches cursed because ye have set your hearts upon them, which he also says in Helaman chapter 13. At the very beginning, Nephi declares, But woe unto the rich, their hearts are upon their treasures, wherefore their treasure is their God. And another Nephi, at the time of Christ, repeats the refrain, Oh, how could you have forgotten your God in the very day he has delivered you? That's the verse we just read. Ye have set your hearts upon the riches and the vain things of this world. Why should we labor this unpleasant point, says Nibley? Because the Book of Mormon labors it for our special benefit. Wealth is a jealous master who will not be served half-heartedly and will suffer no rival, not even God. Their treasure is their God, as Second Nephi chapter 9, verse 20 said. Now Nephi continues in verse 22, And for this cause woe shall come unto you, except ye repent. For if ye will not repent, behold, this great city, and also all those cities, those great cities which are round about, and this is the verse I referenced in the introduction, this verse, verse 22 and verse uh, 28, both talk about the loss of land which are in the land of our possession, so first he's talking about Zarahemla and then other lands round about, shall be taken away that ye shall have no place in them. For behold, the Lord will not grant unto you strength as he has hitherto done to withstand against your enemies. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will not show unto the wicked of my strength to one more than the other, save it be unto those who repent of their sins and hearken unto my words. Now therefore I would that ye should behold, my brethren, that it shall be better for the Lamanites than for you, except ye shall repent. Now we've already gained this sense, of course, in the previous chapter, as we've seen that the Lamanites have truly become more righteous than the Nephites. So that turn has already occurred, and we have seen how the Nephites have fostered and facilitated the Gadianton robbers, whereas the Nephites have eschewed them and driven them out. Verse 24, For behold, they are more righteous than you, for they have not sinned against that great knowledge which ye have received. Therefore the Lord will be merciful unto them, yea, he will lengthen out their days and increase their seed, even when thou shalt be utterly destroyed except thou shalt repent. 
And uh, there, as I mentioned in the introduction, we can think about Alma's words in Alma chapter 45. Yea, woe be unto you because of that great abomination which has come upon you, or come among you, and ye have united yourselves unto it. Yea, that secret band which was established by Gadianton. This might have been surprising to these people that Nephi was speaking so plainly about this secret band. They may have even played as though they didn't know what he was talking about. But clearly he does know about it. And uh, those who are in this crowd that has assembled also do know about it. Yea, woe shall come unto you because of that pride which ye have suffered to enter into your hearts, which has lifted you up beyond that which is good because of your exceedingly great riches. Yea, woe be unto you because of your wickedness and abominations. Now verse 28, he references the loss of land again. And except ye repent, ye shall perish. Yea, even your lands shall be taken from you, and ye shall be destroyed from off the face of the earth. In the four verses that we've just read, in uh, verses 25 through 28, three woes were pronounced. Of this, Thomas Arvaletta has written, Nephi's preaching of woes reminds us of some of the dire woes pronounced in the book of Revelation regarding the last days. See Revelation chapter 8. Woes were usually pronounced when any of three sinful conditions were present. One, joining the secret Gadianton bands. Two, exhibiting exceeding pride. Or three, committing wickedness and abominations. Any one of these would have been enough to topple the Nephite nation. But the combination of all three warranted the dire warning that ye shall be destroyed from off the face of the land. Again, this expression, inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land, but inasmuch as you keep not my commandments, you'll be cut off from my presence, started with Lehi and has been carried very carefully from father to son and has been preached repeatedly throughout the Book of Mormon narrative up to this point. Now here we are, uh, seeing Nephi address these people and telling them the same thing, but in these very um, specific terms, saying that ye have lost your privileges, essentially, with respect to this particular covenant. There is the phrase in verse 28, except ye repent, still adding that provision and um, providing the, the seemingly remote possibility that these people could repent. And of course, earlier he said, repent ye, repent ye, and turn ye, turn ye. To this idea of repenting, F. Burton Howard once wrote, the first step in the repentance process has always been simply to recognize that we have done wrong. If we are so hedged about by pride, rationalization, machismo, or a misdirected sense of self-esteem as to prevent us from ever admitting that we are part of the problem, we are in trouble. We then may not even know of our need to repent. We will have no idea whether the Lord is pleased with us or not and may become past feeling. But all men everywhere must repent. To fail to do so is to perish. That does indeed seem to be a key point about repentance. Uh, That point when we sin provides us with a time uh, or an opportunity when we can uh, repent. But it also... Uh, We're offered with a temptation at that same time to justify what it is that we've just done and to deny the reality of the system which condemns that sin. Well, now the very final verse, verse 29, as Nephi brings this first part of his tower sermon to a close, he says, Behold now, I do not say that these things shall be of myself, because it is not of myself that I know these things. But behold, I know that these things are true because the Lord God has made them known unto me, 
Therefore I testify that they shall be. Now we've seen other prophets do this as well. They're they're um, basically credentialing themselves, and that's what Nephi is doing here as well, saying that this is just not coming out of my own um, my my own thinking and my own ideas. So what he'll do in the next chapter in Helaman chapter eight is is to essentially link himself to other prophets who have preached the same message. Here's something that I referenced in the introduction to this chapter. This is something by John Welch. It's an article that he wrote called, Was Helaman Chapters 7 and 8 an Allegorical Funeral Sermon? This might also read well at the end of chapter 8 after the entire sermon is done, but most of Welch's points have reference to what we've just read in Helaman chapter 7, but I think I'll include it here. He said, and he does so with uh, eight clues that uh, what Nephi was doing here may have been deliberate. Also a question I kind of posed in the introduction that perhaps Nephi was doing all of this in a, in a very calculated way as he lamented on his, um, on his tower. So Welch says first, as he lists these eight clues, that this may have been the case. Nephi was in great mourning and lamentation. Mourning generally means more than just feeling sorry or crying privately. One can imagine Nephi dressed in traditional Nephite mourning attire, whatever that might have been, gesticulating on top of his tower, perhaps in motions of bereavement. Onlookers would have wondered immediately who in the important aristocratic household of the great Alma's descendants had just died. That suggests again that this property of Nephi's would have been inherited from his father Helaman, from his father Helaman before that, when we read in Alma 62 that Helaman returned to the land of his inheritance. Two, Nephi continued with this conduct for a fair amount of time, at least long enough for people to go tell many others in town, who then turned out in multitudes. If during this time Nephi was conducting a recognizable mock mourning or funeral ceremony, this would have been quite a curiosity. Three, whatever he did, it was something of a public spectacle that worked the crowd into a state of awe, for Nephi told them they indeed had great need to marvel. Here's the fourth clue. The tower would probably have been a pyramid or similar structure. Typically, such mounds were used for burials as well as for prayer. If Nephi's tower was the family burial site, his reference to the righteousness of his ancestors in his allegorical funeral for the Nephite nation would have been all the more poignant. 5. If Nephi was mourning and lamenting, the crowd would have wondered, of course, who had died. It would have struck them personally, therefore, when Nephi began decrying their iniquities. Moreover, since he speaks later of murder, which uh, he did in verse 21 of this chapter, but he will do so again in verse 26 of chapter 8, it is possible that he spoke the word murder as he poured out his soul to God while the crowd was gathering. 6. Nephi surprised the crowd when he asked them, Why will ye die? Unless they repent, he told them God will turn them into meat for dogs and wild beasts and their souls will be hurled into everlasting misery. Nephi predicted slaughter and utter destruction at the hands of enemies, and prophesied that the people would be destroyed from off the face of the earth. 7. Nephi then cited examples of people who had been delivered from death, and we'll see this particularly in the next chapter, in Helaman chapter 8, verses 11-19. through 19. 
and spoke of other destroyed peoples. Thus the themes of death and deliverance from death characterize Nephi's words throughout his speech. Nephi concluded by being specific. For one person in particular, Nephi's funeral may have been more than mere allegory. Nephi announced prophetically the death of the chief judge in Zarahemla, and that too we will read of in the next chapter. His death not only would have validated Nephi's words in general, but also would have presented a corpse, symbolically representing all the people of Zarahemla and potentially completing the allegorical message of this apparent funeral sermon. We cannot be certain that this is what Nephi did, but this interpretation adds a rich and interesting possibility of symbolic meaning to this text. That's an utterly fascinating idea that's put forward by John Welch, I think. Again, that's kind of an alternate view to the idea that Nephi had gone to this tower to pour his his heart unto the Lord, and that, that, that doing so was an act of prayer, and that then... When he got up and saw the assembled mass, then that was his bout with post-illumination affliction. Then he simply had to deal with that crowd that had had assembled. So that would be the other possible interpretation of what happened. In any event, we have much more to look forward to as we come to the second part of Nephi's Tower Sermon in Helaman chapter 8. For now, this brings us to the end of Helaman chapter 7. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.